Hello, my name's Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurton and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And what I want to do with you over the next 20 minutes or so is walk you through the fundamentals of mental capacity under the Mental Capacity Act. To do so, I'm going to share some slides so we can look at some text, some key bits of text together, not least actually the text of the Act, because it's incredibly important to come back to what the Act says not, for instance, what the Code of Practice, the Mental Capacity Act currently says, because in a number of fundamental ways, it's wrong. And I'm gonna pick up one really important area where it's wrong. So let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at the beginning with section one of the Mental Capacity Act. And section one of the Mental Capacity Act is really important because it contains a set of principles. Three principles relate to capacity, thinking about capacity, Two principles relate to best interests, thinking about best interests. The principles are on that, on the face of the act. They're the starting point for the act because they're meant to provide you with your moral compass, to guide you thinking about how to think about capacity, to guide you to thinking about how to think through best interests. But the most important thing about a compass is that you know your north from your south. And we've had enough experience with the Mental Capacity Act since it came into force in 2007 to know that the principles are sometimes misapplied quite badly. I think because people confidently and firmly set off in the wrong direction because they think their moral compass is pointing one way, because they think this is what the principle is saying to do, they're telling them to do. In fact, the principle is telling them something completely different. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about these three principles relating to capacity. In each of the slides which follows, the red text after the principle, so where it says principle one, the red text after that is what the law says, what the act says. So the first is a person must be assumed to have capacity unless it's established that they lack capacity. All English law is written as if it applies only to men. It, it doesn't. This is talking about he established it the person that's capacity. What is this principle doing? It is doing something incredibly important, which is saying it is never for somebody to prove their own capacity. If, for instance, a doctor is going to proceed to carry out a, a, a procedure on the basis they think the person doesn't have capacity, they have to be able to show why they have a reasonable belief, having taken steps to support the person, and assess the situation properly, why they have a reasonable belief the person doesn't have capacity. At that point, and then if they act in the person's best interests, Section 5 Mental Capacity Act provides, uh, in technical terms, a defence and liability allows them to proceed. But it's for the doctor to show why they reasonably believe the person doesn't have capacity. It's not for the person to prove. But, and it is a really very, very important but, the presumption is not a license not to engage your brain if there is a reason, a proper reason, to think this person might actually not have capacity to make the decision. So it's not a license to say, for instance, there's a presumption of capacity, I'm just not allowed to investigate or engage my brain and think whether this person's no to what I'm proposing is their own decision, or this person's choice to continue living in this very complicated situation is necessarily their own decision. I think this passage here from this case and all the cases I talk about today, um, you can find on our case or database. I think this passage is actually really helpful in getting it, helping us get it right. 
So it's emphasizing how important presumption of capacity is in terms of ensuring proper respect for personal autonomy by requiring a decision about a lack of capacity to be based on lack of evidence. But it does have its logical limits. If there is a good reason for cause for concern, there's legitimate doubt as to capacity. And I think this, this last bit's really important, this, this phrase. The presumption can't be used to avoid taking responsibility for assessing and determining capacity. Because if you do that, that would be to fail to respect personal autonomy in a different way. Can I just give you a really stark example? Somebody living in a situation of self-neglect, say, if the decision is, or the concern that you know, those involved say, well, there's a presumption of capacity, we're not allowed to think about this situation further. And that person then uh, suffers serious harm in consequence of living in self-neglect. Was it really their true, their truly autonomous decision to keep living like that? Or was that a situation where in fact, they didn't have that capacity and there was, as it were, a disguised best interest decision not to take any further steps to potentially to secure what this person might really want. So the critical thing, the presumption doesn't mean a license not to investigate, not to engage your brain. This presumption is sometimes linked. So I'm actually taking the principles as they appear in the act out of order because I want to take that presumption capacity together with this one before returning to the one that sits in the middle. The presumption of capacity principle is sometimes taken really dangerously together with this, which is a person's not to be treated as unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision. Why do I say the presumption principle is sometimes linked dangerously to this? Because what you might see, what I've seen once too often, is the situation where the records say, well, it's a lifestyle choice. We're not allowed to intervene. Everyone has the right to live in the way that they choose. There's a presumption of capacity. We're just not allowed to. That is radically, if I may say so, to misstate the position. If there's actually a proper reason to investigate and to wonder, you engage professional curiosity as to the, whether the person really has capacity to make that choice or whether what's going on is actually people possibly just saying this is in the box marked far too complicated. It's easier if we just say this person's got capacity. I'm not saying that's necessarily the express thought process, but I think sometimes that's lurking behind it. And it feels like saying, well, there's a right to make unwise decisions. It's a lifestyle choice. It feels like it's the ethically correct thing to do, but it is definitely not what the Mental Capacity Act is talking about here. There is undoubtedly a right to make unwise decisions if you have capacity to make them, make the relevant decision. Local authority and JB, a Supreme Court case I'm gonna talk about in a few minutes, which was handed down in 2021, made clear the right to make unwise decisions arises if you have capacity to make them. And the right doesn't come from the Mental Capacity Act at all. The right comes from the common law probably. So judge-made law recognizing the ability of people with, with full capacity, unimpaired decision-making capacity, to make their own decisions and probably Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, an aspect of the right to respect for private life. People not just going around overriding other people's decisions because they seem odd. But that's where it's the other person's decision where they have actually got capacity to make it. So what this principle is trying to tell us, and it's very important, what this principle is trying to tell us is you can't run straight from, logically go straight from this decision doesn't seem right to me to this person doesn't have capacity to make it. 
or in very stereotypical, stereotypical terms, patient agrees with doctor, patient has capacity. Patient doesn't agree with doctor, patient doesn't agree with, uh, patient doesn't have capacity. And that's what this principle is trying to guard against, so-called protection imperative. But if the decision appears to you to be unwise, so for instance, really radically dangerous for the person, radically at odds with what you knew about them, what they might have wanted to do, for instance, before they got dementia, or just in some way seems to be something which calls for question, you have to think. And that thinking process might be short, but that thinking process does have to take place. So let's do a cheerier principle to finish the three principles. Principle two, a person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision unless all practicable steps to help them do so have been taken without success. It's the most important principle in the act because the act is the mental capacity act. It's not the mental incapacity act. This is telling us we are not allowed to proceed to make decisions in the name of people's best interests unless we have taken all practicable steps to support them to do so. Can I just bring this home with a story? Sometimes I find stories helpful. This case, CH and the Metropolitan Borough Council, is a story about a married couple. At the point they got married, the man uh, who had a learning disability, nobody thought there was any difficulty in him understanding, retaining, using when the information necessary to make a decision about entering into the contract of marriage. So no, everyone thought that there was no reason to, to, to think this was, a, as it were, a problem. A few years later, they're trying to get pregnant. It's or they're trying to have a child. It's they're having difficulties. They see a psychologist, and the psychologist says, "I don't think this man has capacity to consent to sex." That's actually not the test which is applied anymore. A local authority in JB, the Supreme Court in December in, in November 2021 made it made clear it's a slightly different question. But the basic point was the psychologist says, "I don't think this man's got the relevant capacity." At which point all sorts of really complicated things follow because nobody can consent on your behalf. The local authorities say, who are involved, say, in that case, we need to take safeguarding steps to make sure that, in effect, the criminal offences aren't being committed here, in particular criminal offences by the wife. There's a massive intervention in the life of that married couple by the local authority saying, please make sure to the wife, don't lead him on, don't have sex with him, we suggest you sleep in a separate bedroom. Why am I talking about this case now? I'm talking about this case now because of what the psychologist said, which was, if we provide three lessons of sex education to the man, I think he will gain capacity. And the local authority didn't carry out those steps for a year. Once those steps were carried out, everybody then agreed the man had the relevant capacity and the local authority's safeguarding concerns were, as it were, lifted. A case was brought on his behalf, saying, actually, interestingly, not challenging the initial intervention. And as the judge said, that initial intervention might have been that the price that couple had to pay for another public good, which is consent must mean consent. But it wasn't the initial thing. It was the fact that the local authority didn't carry out steps, practicable steps to support this person, this man, to have capacity. And because they didn't carry those out, the local authority couldn't say, well, this massive interference in this married couple's right to private and family life together is justified. Obviously, that's practicable. 
And by way of counterexample, NHS Foundation Trust and AB, a very difficult case uh, involving a young woman, again, with learning disabilities, could she make decisions as to contraception? Read that case and you will see the NHS Trust in, in question did absolutely everything they could to try and support this person to be able to make decisions about contraception without success. And the judge, and I think there's a real reluctance, you can see a real reluctance on, on, on the face of the judgment, reluctantly goes to, I'm going to have to make this decision on her behalf because there really is nothing else we can do to support this person. So those are the three principles and I hope are a way of thinking through how to read the compass. So let's look at what the Act actually says. That is making clear a number of things. Section two is what the Act provides in terms of capacity. And it's a definition we have written down. It's not some sort of mythic, magical thing you can identify in nature. This is a thing that we have said as a society through Parliament. If you fall into this, anybody could fall here. Anybody could be here. If you're here, it means we think you don't have the ability to make the decision. So we have to do something in the name of your best interests. Well, what have we said? Well, we've said it could be anybody. It's decision specific. So you never just write people off. It's decision specific. If at the time the decision is needed, the material time, you can't make the decision for yourself. Can't make the decision, understand information, retain the information, use or weigh the information or communicate your decision. You're in locked in syndrome. So society is said through parliament, if you can't make the decision at the point you need to make it, and you can't make it because there's something wrong with your mind or brain, and that could be temporary. It could be because you've been knocked out after a car crash, say. We're not just talking about somebody who might have something on a longer term basis. If you can't do that, if you can't do these things, you don't have the ability to make that decision. Here's a mechanism, and in the best interest fundamentals video, you'll talk, well, I'll talk more about that mechanism. Here's a way in which to think through the situation. So the right way of thinking about this, a local authority in JB, the Supreme Court decision in November 2021, makes clear the code of practice is just wrong when it says you start with, is there something wrong with the mind or brain? You don't. You start with, can the person make the decision? And if they can't, even after you've done everything you can to support them, then you think, is there something with the, wrong with this person's mind or brain? And is the reason the person can't make the decision because of what's wrong with their mind or brain? The Supreme Court don't break out the second and third questions in quite that way. They say there's effectively just one question. Is the reason the person can't make the decision because of the impairment or disturbance in the functioning of the mind or brain? But I think it's easier just to really be analytically clear and say, is there something wrong here? temporarily or permanently wrong with a person's mind or brain, functioning the mind or brain, which is actually meaning that they can't make the decision. But the critical thing is start with, can they make the decision? If they can make the decision, then you are engaging with that person on a capacitor's basis. And if their decision is one which is proving challenging to you, you don't just walk away, you engage with the person, but you are engaging with them on the basis that they've got capacity. So what I just wanted to speak very quickly about, because this is a kind of real high level overview. This is a, a, a big project, which is about to come to an end when I'm recording in the end of 2021. It's about to come to an end. And it is a project about 
mental health and justice. And one of the things it's talking about is a work stream or has a work stream on thinking about more difficult capacity situations. And we're producing guidance and there's a website which will be up soon, which you can, uh, as I'm recording this into December 2021, which you'll be able to link to through there with guidance about how to think through more difficult situations. But critically, the start of a 10 is how can you eliminate unnecessary complexity before you get to the more genuinely difficult situations? So always think, why am I being asked to think about capacity? Please don't think about things in the abstract. A very good example. It's a very unhelpful thing to think, does this person have capacity to make decisions about alcohol? It's not an interesting question to ask because you don't know what you're meant to do with the answer. It's only interesting insofar as, for instance, the person's inability to control their drinking has a knock-on impact on, for instance, their ability to make decisions about their care or their residence. So think why you're thinking about this. Then be clear about what exactly is the question that you're having to think about. What is the decision you think this person needs to make? That allows you then to say, is this decision, the way to think about this decision governed by case law? There are some cases, some situations which are governed, governed by case law. So for instance, sex, local authority and JB, Supreme Court has said, you need to think about it through the the question you need to ask is, does this person have the capacity to make decision to engage in sexual relations? So is it governed by case law? And then critically, what is the information? Local authority and JB, the first time the Supreme Court thinks about capacity, really emphasise, be clear about the decision you think this person needs to take, which might be to consent to something you're wanting or to make a decision for themselves about, for instance, where they live. And then you need to be clear about the information that person needs to be able to understand. And if you're working in an MDT setting, multidisciplinary team setting, please be sure that you are clear with everybody involved what everybody thinks the relevant information is. Otherwise, that's a source of massively unnecessary confusion. And I would just add also the information includes the reasonably foreseeable consequences of the per for the person of making the decision or not making the decision. And I just love this quote from an Australian case, but an Australian case which is really talking through um, uh, how to think about capacity, applying and a piece of legislation looks very much like the Mental Capacity Act. And it's reminding us, why do I love this quote so much? It's reminding us that we are doing this in a context. We're not just thinking about capacity in the abstract. We're thinking about capacity because we are trying to juggle principles which come from elsewhere. Principles of self-determination, freedom from non-consensual medical treatment, personal inviability, the right not to be told where we live and who to see, say. Don't come from the mental capacity out there or coming from other places. But also principles relating to positive things the state, for instance, needs to do. Healthcare professionals trying to take practicable steps to secure someone's right to life in the presence of suicide risk, say, or upholding the right to health. So these are positive duties on the state to try and secure people's greater interests, but we're trying to juggle these. How do we, when we're thinking about capacity, when capacity comes in, how do we think about this? They are most respected, these bigger meta principles by capacity assessments that are criteria focused, applying, you know what the MCA says. They're evidence-based, you are explaining how you have reached your conclusion. 
They are person-centered. They're about that person. They're not about individuals with schizophrenia in general. They're about that person and they are non-judgmental. You are doing the best you can, and I freely acknowledge this and be challenging, the best you can to make clear this is this person's decision. They might apply a very different value set to me. And then I just love this last line, such assessments engage with the demand or plea of the person to be understood for who they are, free of prejudgment and stereotype in a context of a decision about their own body and private life. I think if you can sellotape this up somewhere, other forms of adhesive are available, it, it would be brilliant because I think this really just helps you get it all the way through because it's also locating this in a bigger picture. If you need more help, we regularly update the capacity guidance note that we do in chambers, which really helps walk through how to think about assessing capacity. And then separately, which I haven't really talked about here, recording your assessment. I always try and use the word assessment for the process of thinking about capacity. That goes on for as long as you need to do it. The process of assessing, gathering as much evidence as you need to, which could be from talking to the person, it could be triangulating what you're hearing from the person with what you know about them from other places, say. Assessment continues for as long as you need to until you've got the evidence you need. And then determination is putting all that evidence together, applying the criteria or making sure that you, you're clear about the criteria and coming up with a record of your conclusion. I always try and break out assessment and determination. And the guide here helps you think through both the process of assessing and the process of recording your conclusions. So very lastly, some resources. The top link there is our mental capacity resource page. All the cases I've talked about you can find there. Our guidance notes about capacity, best interests. Also the mental capacity report, which comes out monthly, it's free. You can find all the back issues there and subscribe to it. And then a, a range of other relevant websites. Thank you very much indeed for watching.